Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. There are over 300,000 digital health apps on the market. However, only a third of them have been updated in the last 18 months, says Liz Ashalpain, CEO and founder of Orca, a UK-based organization with a mission to distribute validated apps to patients who need them. I am your host, Yash Zaitz, and today you will be listening about the complexity of digital health app regulation. Lisa Shalpain is a digital health veteran who started her career as a speech and language therapist. She worked as an assistant director of health professionals. She was a clinical program manager of Academic Health Science Network for the Northwest Coast in the UK. She was an international outreach coordinator for ECHA Alliance and more. After years of being in the digital health space, she founded Orcam. Orca is most known for the company's review process of digital health apps and enabling healthcare providers to create the digital health app libraries that can work as formularies for doctors to prescribe apps to their patients. App innovators, however, cannot buy their way in the library. This approach is here to say, says Liz, because independence is a core aspect of Orca's offering. Enjoy the show and do visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to browse through other episodes as well. If you're interested in learning more about regulation, go to January's episode about the upcoming medical device regulation, which was supposed to be enforced this year, but the deadline moved to 2021 because of the coronavirus. Find the link in the show notes. Now to Liz Ashall Payne. Enjoy the show, and if you haven't yet, subscribe to the show so you will be notified about upcoming episodes automatically. And if you like what you will hear, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes so others interested in digital health will be able to find the show as well. Liz, uh, perhaps we can start with a little bit of a provocative question. So... By today, regulation for apps has more or less been in place. The MDR is also putting a lot of constraints on uh, the apps, but it's uh, going into effect in 2021. So why would we even need additional uh, organizations to to do uh, reviews such as ORCA? Why is that important? It's interesting that you touched on uh, medical device um, regulations and the changes and the updates to those that are happening next year. They were forecast to be in place from now, but because of COVID, they put those back. Now, the medical device regulations are looking at a part of regulations for digital health. Um, There are also other parts of regulatory requirements that also sit within the world of digital health. So just looking at that clinical area and clinical validity, yes, the C certification for medical devices is very important, but so are um, regulatory guidelines like the NICE Evidence Standard Framework, which is all about assessing impact of the product and the evidence of that impact. You also have regulatory and um, standards and best practice guides around clinical safety. 
and um, there are whole other areas of clinical um, regulatory requirements um, that could be needed depending on where you work in the world. So in the NHS, for example, we have something called the CQC regulation, which is relevant for products that are providing a service. So just that little um, introduction into the world of regulation standards just in that clinical domain, what it starts to show you is that it's not about one regulatory requirement being ticked and then you've met all of the regulatory requirements. There are lots of other elements that you need to consider. And obviously the MDR doesn't cover all um, digital health solutions, so some will fall outside of that. And that's before we move into other domains like data security, data privacy, user experience, interoperability, etc. And so what we're trying to do is collate all of those standards, regulations and best practice, apply them to products proportionately, support the innovator to meet the requirements because it's a confusing landscape, and then help end users, frontline healthcare um, workers and healthcare systems know which are good across all of the domain areas. So we're managing risk across all of the different areas rather than just looking at one area. Orca is present in several countries around the world. So you mentioned some regulations that are specifically present in the UK market. Uh, so when an app uh, goes through the Orca review process, do you also give feedback on how many different countries and regulations that are country-specific? The way in which we've dealt with jurisdictional differences and requirements is we have developed a review process that enables everybody to have their additional requirements on top of the global requirements. So we use a layered approach to accreditation. So the ORCA Foundation layer is over 300 data points across those different domain areas. And this is information that everybody in the world would be interested in. And then when we work with a new jurisdiction or a new country, we work with them to understand, well, what are the specific requirements for your country? And then we add those into our review process as additional questions. One, what that means is that everybody can benefit from the thousands of products that we've already put through the foundation layer and the 600 new products that we add to that every month. Um, But also, if you're an innovator, it's very clear then what the rules are to go to new markets and you only have to do the bulk of the questions once. which is really powerful. It means that there's true economies of scale. And so that that's how we work in different jurisdictions. So we work in six countries in Europe. Obviously, we work um, with the NHS um, in England, and we work in the Middle East, we work in New Zealand. And they all use this foundation tier, and then they add on additional, we call them enhanced review components, dependent on their jurisdictional requirements. Can you mention a few examples of what are perhaps differences between jurisdictions, if there are any obvious ones? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll touch on a very, very obvious one. Um, A very obvious one would be around data interoperability. So if you have a very specific um, infrastructure um, and you want the digital health solutions to be able to plug in and share their data within that data environment you can set the rules 
for that developer to meet so that they can plug in their um, uh, data. Now, truth be told, at national level, um, we don't tend to see one infrastructure. And so the enhanced review component for interoperability quite often sits at a regional level or even at a local level. But at a national level, for example, in New Zealand, we're adding an enhanced review component for cultural fit because of the different cultures that they have within New Zealand. And that's important for the innovator to know, but equally it's more most important at point of use. So what we do with this information we have from the review work is we then put that into digital health libraries or catalogues that people can now search and filter according to their own preferences. So if you have a certain cultural background or you have a certain requirement, you can filter a long list of good solutions because there are lots of them according to your personal preferences and need. And then you can find not just a good product, but also the best products for you and your personal circumstances. Orca has reviewed 6,000 apps by today. So how big is your team to manage you know, all the regulatory requirements that are specific for countries. And uh, how long does one review take? Yeah, so it's a big answer, this. Um, so um, the, the first thing is what we did right at the beginning of Orca's journey was we built a review engine, which is basically a tool which allows us to process thousands of products at any given point. It's a manual process, but we use technology to help us to process products because it can become quite... Um, uh, so apologies for those pop-ups um, it can become quite um, difficult if you're trying to do that job on paper or in spreadsheets so the review engine um, allows us to process lots and lots of products and the way in which we process them is we have a review coordinator and the review coordinator asks objective questions of the product gathers evidence and information in answer to these questions and packages them up and hands them to a subject matter expert in that area to um, validate the evidence that they're being presented with. So we have app review coordinators and then specialists who are handed off packages of information through this technology platform. Is there anything that is common to startups that go through reviews like any common mistakes or lack of information that they provide the short answer is no there aren't any common mistakes the reason why is there are around about two and a half thousand standards that could apply to your solution and the first challenge for a startup particular is even getting a long list of those standards. They're quite well hidden. When you get the long list, quite a lot of them you have to download and pay to read, a lot of ISO standards. You then have to understand them. You then have to apply them. And you then have to create your product to meet those requirements. And it's a really confusing time. What we see is it depends on the developer's background where they may have a gap. So if you have a doctor who's developed an innovation, doesn't necessarily have any background in data security or data privacy, they might have a gap there. Obviously, if they're a technologist, they might have a gap on the clinical side just because they didn't know that those regulatory requirements were there. So the beauty of what we do is we break all this down 
apply those regulations to a product in a proportionate way and then provide improvement reports and support to help them meet those regulatory requirements and the way in which we end the review is with that improvement report but also with a score out of 100 and what that's meant to um, say to the world of digital health and us all as end users is that there isn't a perfect product and there never will be. There'll always be a side effect in the same way that we see side effects in drugs. But a side effect of a digital health solution might be that a product doesn't work for somebody with a visual impairment or a hearing impairment. And obviously, if you don't have that, then you can use that solution. How did you get into this field in the first place? Because you studied language and speech therapy, did a master's in leadership in health and social care, among other things. You also worked as an assistant director of Allied Health Professionals. So it seems a little bit far from what you do today. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a question that I get asked all the time, actually. So when I started working clinically on my first day, and this is over 20 years ago, so this is before we had um, computers on our desks, I felt really frustrated at the end of a day of working in clinic because I'd only been able to see six patients. And I felt really frustrated because I was obviously reduced by my own personal capacity. I could only see one patient at a time. And this took me on a journey of being interested in service improvement, service redesign, system improvement, system redesign. And that's what led me to take on um, and do my master's. And so it was called it's, it's Lean Methodologies that I got interested in at the time and Six Sigma. And I was always, my ambition was always to see if we could get more care to more people quicker. And that that was my driving energy. And so I, I started out doing that at service level and then um, I took a more system level role working across um, AHPs, allied health professionals, which are the therapy services. So um, speech therapy, physiotherapy, podiatry, those kind of therapy. Those are AHPs. That's right. Yes, they're the AHPs. Okay. Yeah. So you have doctors, nurses right. and therapists, AHPs. And then I also, and then I took a, a more system um, level role working as quality improvement lead. And then I worked um, uh, regionally with an organization called the King's Fund, um, supporting system leadership and thinking about what the enablers were to supporting that, that change and that transformational impact. And it was at that point, maybe 2007, where digital started to become an enabler to supporting that system transformation. That was one of the work streams that I was working with leaders of systems to think through when they wanted to have an impact on the number of patients getting through the system and better health outcomes. And then as time went on, we all started to buy smartphone devices. The world of apps exploded. Around about 2013, there was about 30,000 digital health solutions in the app stores. And I just thought, well, this is a genuine opportunity to be able to distribute healthcare without one person impacting another. Everybody can have access to the same solution at the same time. And that was really, for me, the trigger that made me really interested in digital health. But then what happened was I then started working nationally and then internationally across Europe. Um, And I started to see that although we had this opportunity, people weren't taking that opportunity because ultimately they didn't trust them. Um, And I was back to being reduced by my own capacity because I was back in a position of um, trying to talk 
to individuals and individual systems about great solutions. And I thought we need a systematic approach to distribute digital health solutions in a trusted way. And that was where the idea for Orca came up. So uh, you mentioned yourself that you, like the development happened slowly in a way that you uh, got into the digital health field. Um, you held several roles, worked for the uh, ECHA Alliance, um, the NHS Innovation Accelerator. So I really wonder, uh, given that you're in this uh, field for more than a decade, how much uh, difference in the attitude are you noticing? Because my impression is that once you're in the digital health space, you have the impression that everything's already been addressed with the digital health solution solutions. After all, there is more than 360,000 apps uh, available um, across the world. So I wonder, like, on the clinician's side, if you are not in this field, you know, how much are you noticing still the need for the awareness? Yeah, so it, it's high, actually. I think that we're still early on the journey, to be absolutely honest. I think that the backdrop of the COVID crisis, we've seen an acceleration in use of digital health. But I think, to be completely honest, I think that we're only dipping our toe in the water. Um, and I'll give you an example. So, we, you know, what we've seen systems do is really incorporate telehealth, teleconsultation into the workflow. So <clears throat> rather than seeing patients face-to-face, We're now seeing them online and particularly amongst GPs and primary care. And that's been really brilliant. So, I mean, in the UK, we've seen the shift from about 30% use of telehealth to about 90% just in the last few months. So that's been pretty rapid access and sorry, pretty rapid acceleration of use of digital health. But there's so much more we could do. And really what we're doing at the minute is we're just pushing the problem further down the chain. And I'll give you an, an example. So, If you're a GP and the first patient you see in the morning um, is concerned about an irregular heartbeat and you're thinking, could they have atrial fibrillation? The next step is to refer them on to have an ECG monitor. Well, obviously, at the moment, what we don't want to be doing is bringing in patients for diagnostics that don't necessarily need it. And there is a brilliant digital health tool, which is an app called FibroCheck, which a doctor could recommend via text message to their patient phone, patient's phone using our solution. The patient can then download the app and take their ECG monitor and report back immediately. Equally, um, if it was um, a, a referral for a patient gets on a teleconsultation with a GP saying they're concerned about a mole and changes to a mole, again, normally you would refer on to dermatology. Well, at the moment, again, not really wanting to bring patients in for diagnostics, but how about we recommend Skin Vision, a brilliant mole checking tool. Um, and just recently, um, we've seen some new guidance, actually, in the NHS around chronic pain management, where GPs are being asked not to prescribe drugs for pain, chronic pain, um, but to refer on to physiotherapy, to acupuncture or to CBT clinics. And those things are not really in use. Well, they are in use, but um, again, it's it's a little bit challenging because of COVID. Well, how about um, prescribing a digital health solution to support pain? And I think that's where we need to move to. We need to move further, faster. I think what you touch on from an awareness perspective is awareness is still low. So I've just described to you four solutions, um, and I know all about digital health. But if you're a 
an, an average frontline healthcare professional, you don't know about these solutions and you don't know because you're not trained in them. So awareness is still pretty low. Do you work with healthcare institutions as well? You know, so for example, hospitals and how does that collaboration look like? Yes, we do five key things. Um, the first is we review and approve digital health solutions, and that's what we're most known for. And what's interesting is our mission isn't to review products, our mission is to distribute them. So that's only the first step in distributing digital health. What we then do is we then work with hospitals and providers or payers of healthcare systems to create distribution channels of high quality solutions which get which are in app libraries or digital health catalogues and get promoted to their target population. And then we work with healthcare professionals who have touch points with that population. So if the target population is adults mental health, adults with mental health, we then work with GPs and primary care physicians and um, uh, healthcare professionals working along a mental health pathway. And the first thing we do is we educate and train. Um, and then we provide them with the ability to use this library as a formulary so they get an additional um, feature called Orca Pro, which turns the library into a formulary that they can now prescribe solutions to their patient's phone via text message. And patients love it. So within three seconds of sending the recommendation, the patient receives a text message with the digital health solution and they hit the link and they can download it. And for a, a prescribing doctor or clinician, this is about managing risk as well, because digital health solutions change all the time. And a key part of our review process is that we re-review every time the product updates and changes. And if you've used our solution to prescribe a solution, a digital health um, app, then we know when what's gone where, did the person download it? And if our re-review in the future finds a future fault, we can do a recall should it be needed. So we're continuously managing risk through that solution. Two obvious questions here are, uh, are uh, doctors incentivized for prescribing the apps and how are the apps reimbursed? And uh, on top of that, uh, what changes are you noticing in different countries? I would imagine that the German market is one of the most promising at the moment, you know, with the rapid uh, change and ambition to prescribe apps and to reimburse them to health insurance. Yeah, so there's a few questions in there. So the, the first is, um, are GPs or doctors or healthcare professionals incentivized to do this? Well, what I would say is not directly, so they don't get a, a reimbursement for using the solution, but it's a different way of um, being reimbursed um, at scale and pace. I'll give you an example. There's a lot, it depends on the system we're talking about, but I'm, um, and like you say, we work in 11 countries, but I'm just going to give you um, an example of incentivization within the NHS. So GPs are um, funded through a system of points, and one of the point allocations that they get given <clears throat> is if they can um, provide advice to patients on their caseload that are known to smoke in an attempt to try and reduce smokers 
in their amongst their population and at the moment or what was happening was patients were being brought in to have a conversation with the doctor about quitting smoking and you can imagine that that's quite an amount of face-to-face consultations it's taking up resource for somebody else who might need it and the did not attend rate was pretty high because those who didn't want to give up smoking just didn't attend the appointment so what we what we see is that if a GP uses our system to recommend the best smoking cessation solution to all those um, patients all at once then they've been able to do the job very rapidly and um, the system can monitor uptake and there's a patient reported outcome measure element plus there's a hard measure around did that person stop smoking so they can then get those points and therefore the reimbursement in a, by using digital to get there faster and I think that that's the the way in which we've structured how we work with the healthcare system now you also asked about well Who pays for the solution that is being prescribed? Really, really important part of the the, the whole process and the sustainability of the whole process. So um, what we've done is we've built a dynamic procurement system or DPS dynamic purchasing system that sits behind what I've just described. And it's quite clunky at the moment, but basically what it means is that if a provider or a payer or a national government want to pay for a product on behalf of their patients or populations, they can now pay for it and procure it very quickly and the tariff can be managed at point of prescription. Um, Now this is happening in small pockets um, and as as you say in Germany they've passed a reimbursement law that says if a clinician recommends a product, there will be a national payment to that innovation innovator. And as you said, that's really exciting. Um, where Germany are at the minute is therefore just working through the other steps. So the review process, and then obviously there's a distribution channel. How do we now tell people which ones to use? And then there's a formulary requirement for the doctors to know which products they can prescribe, and then there's a mechanism of how do you prescribe it. So they still have some gaps in their jigsaw puzzle, um, as everybody does have, Um, but it's really, really exciting to see that national um, picture and um, support. Do you by any chance know approximately, approximately how many hospitals are you present in? So it's that, that, that's so we we work in hospitals, but we also work in um, community care centres, mental health centres. We work in GP practices, but we don't just work in health. We also work in care. So um, with councils and local authorities, we also work with universities. Uh, we work with corporates. From a number of hospitals, I would have to go back and check. The reason I ask this is because uh, the NHS, which has ambitious plans in terms of healthcare digitization, has a so-called program of digital exemplars. And um, everyone who works in healthcare IT knows that when you are digitizing the system, you need consultants to convince consultants that something makes sense. So I imagine that, you know, a lot of the way that Orca is spreading is also 
so based on the recommendations between hospitals is that right or yeah that that, that is right so just uh, in the nhs we work with 50% of the nhs but each of those different organizations have their own journey within it and it is a journey so for some um organizations that we've been working with for years they're much further on in their deployment and activation than say those that we're only just starting with so as i mentioned before there is this pre step pre um delivery which is all about education and training before you can then embed a solution like prescribing digital health i checked the library that's available if you register on orca and i noticed that among the filters there's also the country of origin of an app which i thought was really really interesting so i wonder why do you think that's important to know where the developer is from and do you see any bias if for example the app is not from US or the UK or and is it's it's just coming from a really small country so what you're talking about there is one of the filters and we have different filters according to the age of the end user so if you talking to a teenager the product that they want will be different to a child or an adult there are other filters around cost business models and the reason that the country of origin came up was because our clients were asking for that and they were asking for it for a number of different reasons but the main reason is if you're going to recommend a product to your patient you want it to meet their personal preferences and needs and cultural fit is obviously one of the critical elements the world is a much smaller place than it used to be and so if you're a clinician you might be seeing patients from a whole load of different backgrounds of ethnicity and cultural backgrounds and finding a product that meets their ethnicity and cultural background is really important as for bias what's really interesting is when we're working um at ministry of health level they're also really interested in bringing new innovations into their country so that their population can benefit from them and they're also interested in supporting their innovators to export into other countries and that's the fab thing about digital health and digital generally is you're not restricted by um the country you're based in but obviously if you've got somebody in a different country who's from your country they might be able to get more benefit because it meets their personal preferences in a way that others don't what are your main competitors on the market i am mostly familiar with the us market where a lot of hospitals or healthcare systems you know started with innovation hubs uh, out of which grew various app stores uh, for prescribing apps for the doctors There are a number of different organizations across the world, um private and public organizations who are interested in this space. Your question about who are our competitors is a really difficult one to answer because there are different people who do different elements of what we do. So we took the the viewpoint that we our mission was to distribute digital health solutions and then we worked it back and said okay, what are the key barriers to distributing digital health? For some of those competitors if you want to call them that their mission is to review products and rate products and that's the scope of their work um so where they start and where they stop is different to our scope and in fact for most people or most organizations who 
would potentially be viewed as a competitive talker. I actually see them as opportunities to collaborate with because there's enough digital health solutions in the world for us all. Because our mission is about getting these good solutions to people, we collaborate with anybody who, who is also aligned to that. You know, you, you mentioned um, a couple of places in America. I think that one of the critical things that we've really tried to maintain is our genuine independence. So you can't pay to be in any of our digital health catalogs or libraries. You get in there if you're good. And that's mm-hmm. it. So I think one of the big challenges for organisations that are creating digital health libraries or catalogues and they're putting products in there because they're paid to be there, that, that really is difficult then for the prescribing healthcare professional. We, we don't do that. Um, and we never would because we're all about engaging with the healthcare professionals to activate patients. You kind of got me thinking because one thing that I keep repeating in the last few episodes is what uh, Mary Lou Ackerman told me when we were discussing just kind of the provider perspective on all the digital supply of solutions. And she said that she feels that vendors should really work more with vendors you know because users are just overwhelmed with with the amount of apps that are still implemented what's your perspective uh, in that regard yeah so it's a collaboration is absolutely fundamental to this whole space um and actually to us as an organization collaboration is is one of our four values we recruit to that value base we have so many different partnership arrangements um, a lot of them vendor to vendor and um, and that's really important you know what we do is you know as I've used the analogy before of a jigsaw puzzle we are a piece of the jigsaw puzzle but we are also um, partnering with other people who they're not prescribing um, digital health they might be social prescribing or prescribing videos or prescribing information now if you're a patient you don't want four different prescriptions you want one with all the information in the same place and that to achieve that seamless experience we're going to have to collaborate and I genuinely genuinely believe that collaboration is critical um now I, I can't make everybody collaborate with us um I invite people to collaborate um and I'm very and I'm always keen to do so Um, and I think, you know, the, the point that you made is very well made. It's, it's really important that we do collaborate together. Uh, given your long-term experiences in healthcare and very good knowledge about healthcare issues such as interoperability, how do you see uh, is this uh, drive toward better collaboration of vendors and interoperability changing, given that a lot of times... Um, to be interoperable uh, also means that the vendor has additional costs you know to the solution um, so there's really no incentive for the vendors to 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 not create their own standard if the the uh, the customer doesn't uh, require it which i think is not happening a lot at least not yet you're absolutely right it, it, it's really interesting isn't it um healthcare systems say oh we want um uh, digital health solutions to share their data with us as a system but you're absolutely right they're not incentivized to do that and it costs money to do that and it takes effort and 
the innovator may be thinking, well, my future business model may sit with that data. So um, how do I, you know, circle this square? Well, the, for, for me, it's pretty simple. The system, the healthcare system needs to see these products as in the same way we see drugs. And as such, we need to pay transactionally for these products. Now, in order to achieve those transactional payments, um, one of the criteria could be if you interoperate your data um, and share your data, then you can then get into a system of procurement and payment um, uh, point of being recommended to a patient. And only then will everybody be incentivized to be doing the same thing and sharing their data. And what that means is, I think, then we'll see personal health records really um, just explode because then as an individual, you'll be able to see your personal health data from a number of sources in one place, which is ultimately what we want. Um, but at the minute, as you say, um, innovators aren't necessarily incentivized to do that. Sometimes I have the impression that everybody's patient-centric until they have to be patient-centric by working together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it, the, the, the backdrop to this is, is actually genuinely um, a challenge. So if you're an innovator, it's really hard to sustain on this marketplace. And, you know, you touched on um, the big number of digital health solutions, just even apps that are available to us. So 365,000 digital health apps on the app stores. But when you then just very um, high level say, well, how many of those are being maintained and updated? Only one third of those um, solutions are actually up have been updated in the last 18 months. So two thirds of that world are basically redundant um, or zombie um, because nobody's looking after them. And the reason nobody's looking after them is because there hasn't been a sustainable um, financial backdrop because it costs a lot of money so you know we, we do have to get to a point of economic sustainability for these innovators because otherwise we could potentially lose the opportunity that digital health presents one last question what are your hopes regarding the upcoming years or just your aspirations as into what you wish to achieve. I don't want to talk about predictions because with COVID, I think everyone was taken by surprise. So let's just not go there. For me, my hope is that um, the prescription of a digital health solution is as common as the prescription of drugs. It's pretty simple, really. And as the receiving patient, you know, um, as somebody who lives with a long-term condition, I use digital health all the time and I know which digital health solutions to work that work and that are good, but I know that I'm not necessarily um, the the average person with that knowledge. And so um, I'd love to see prescription of digital health happening much broad much more broadly and being incorporated into the way in which healthcare systems work and actually broader than healthcare systems social care systems, education systems, occupational health systems, etc. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you liked the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. 
To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhelp.com. And of course, stay tuned.